Father, I pray that your hand would be upon us, your voice speak to us, your spirit be within us, that we may be guided by you, instructed by you, and inspired by you to follow you according to your will and purpose. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're on page 58, 59 of your Bibles. And we ask ourselves, what does it take to make a man who can lead lead God's people through the wilderness for 40 years? That's the basic question we uh, need to consider when we come to this part of our series on uh, the journey into freedom in these chapters through Exodus. Uh, And we think about the call of Moses, Bishop John, uh, talking about the children of Israel, uh, told us that what sustained them uh, through their time of growth and slavery in a foreign land was that there was the promise of God, that it would be fulfilled. The promise leads us to the future. We are the people living for the fulfillment of the promise of God. And then last time we heard from Pat that even in the darkest time, when baby boys were being thrown into the Nile to be drowned or eaten by crocodiles, the child Moses was delivered from his danger because that promise was being worked out. Delivered, she said, by the presence of God and in the circumstances of his life and his upbringing in the royal palace, he was developed as the person to fulfill his destiny. So Moses grew up with this sense. No doubt his mother had told him when he was young, but he's growing up with this sense that he is no ordinary child. He has it appears, that sense of destiny about him. See, Moses grew up in the royal palace, but his heart was for another throne. He grew up amongst the rulers of the kingdom of the earth, but his desire, his home, was really in the kingdom of God. His heart was living out the story of the great Uh, of the the great story of the people of God. And it's the same thing, isn't it, in the life of uh, Joseph before him. And we discovered a while ago in the life of Nehemiah after him that God calls the people who live by the story of the promises of God. So the call of Moses is rooted in this story of God's people. Moses knows his destiny is tied up with that story. He has a sense in some way that he will deliver God's people. Winston Churchill, incidentally, had the same sense of destiny. When he, even when he was at school, he said, what are you going to do when you grow up? He said, I will grow up to deliver the nation or the, the English nation from its darkest hour. And he did. Well, Moses grew up with that same sense of destiny. That's the first thing really to be said about this call of Moses. But it also needs to be said, by way of introduction, that this call of Moses took some time. 
God's time, in fact. There's the passage in Acts chapter 7 that Pat referred to last week. And it tells us there that uh, Moses' time in the Egyptian palace was 40 years. And then when he fled to Midian, he was 40 years in the wilderness, shepherding Jethro's sheep. And then he returned to Egypt to take on Pharaoh, to lead the people out and to lead them through the wilderness for 40 years. So, Deuteronomy tells us he was 120 years old when he died. All the kind of mathematics sum, up, sum it up very neatly. But what does it take to lead God's people through the wilderness for 40 years? Well, it takes 40 years of leading sheep through the wilderness first. When you've learned to lead a man's sheep, then you're able perhaps, to lead God's sheep through the wilderness. Those who are trustworthy with a little, said Jesus, will be trusted with a lot. How can you be trusted with valuable things if you've not first proved trustworthy with less valuable things? So this impetuousness of Moses, where he goes out and he kills the Egyptian for the sake of his calling for the sake of his destiny, and buries him in the sand. That impetuousness of thinking that he was going to do it had to be worked out of him. He had to learn that it wasn't Moses who was going to deliver God's people, but that God was going to deliver God's people through him. So those are the two broad thoughts about the call of Moses that we need to, to have right but then we'll look at it in detail. And, and I suppose what we ought to be asking ourselves is, if we have a notion of being called by God, where are the things that we talk about with the call of Moses resonating with us as we go through them? The first thing is that there is a vocation to be fulfilled. And by vocation, uh, I don't mean it's the whole thing. I mean it's that thing in a person which they have to do, the kind of defining activity of their heart, their desire, their yearning, their go-to activity, which makes them feel more alive than anything else. I wonder if you've got such a thing in your heart, such a vocation to do it. It's the thing we cannot not do. I met a man last week who'd driven from uh, Bristol to Chelmsford, to demonstrate outside the law courts on behalf of the uh, Stansted 15 who had laid down around the nose wheel of an aircraft which was illegally deporting uh, uh, people back to their native countries without uh, appeal and without hearing. And they laid down and now they're on trial. It's going on for six weeks down in our law courts. And... Uh, he also spent a year and a half in the jungle in Calais. And when I spoke to him, he, he said he'd been a church minister, he'd been a teacher, but he's not actually doing anything of that nature now. And I asked him why. He said, well, every now and again, something comes along and I just have to. I have to go and work with the refugees. I have to go and demonstrate for justice. Well, for Moses, it appears that his vocation, the thing he just had to do, 
was to look out for the weak and for the downtrodden. It seems he was compelled when he saw injustice and oppression, and he would do something about it. Verse 11 and 12 in uh, chapter 2, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. You can kind of sense in that sentence the anger building up as he looks up across them and he sees them slaving away in the injustices. And then he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So he kills him. He buries the body in the sand. And the next day, he stands up for the underdog in a fight between two Hebrew people, standing up against the one who was wrong. I never thought that Moses would turn out to be a true Englishman, standing up for the underdog, rooting for the one who is being oppressed. It's what we do, isn't it? Well, I do. I know it's in my Englishness. But he is. But he's not thanked for it. In standing up for the underdog, he becomes an underdog himself. So the Hebrew man, in verse 14 and 15, the Hebrew man stands up to him. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the answer is God did, but that's beside the point. The man goes on. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses realizes he is undone. He hasn't got the support of the Hebrew people as the leader and saviour. And they are talking about what he's done in such a manner that it reaches the ear of Pharaoh in verse 15. And Pharaoh is out to kill him and Moses becomes a fugitive. And he's on the run in Midian and he comes to this well and he stands up for the weak and the downtrodden there, these daughters of Ruel, Zipporah being one of them, driven away from the well when the shepherds come and Moses steps in and he says, these women will water. And then he marries one of them. Zipporah, and he has a child by her, and as she gives birth, he kind of utters this defining moment when he names the child Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses, the underdog of underdogs, lost everything in his vocation to stand up for the oppressed. But he gained his very life. He gained all that he was meant to be. His heartfelt passion was leading him into becoming the fullness of that person. And the point is that God calls fishermen to be fishers of men. We have some guests who seem to be coming our way. God calls fishermen to be fishers of men. He calls shepherds to lead his people through the wilderness. God, God's call... Over here, everybody. <laughs> They're beautiful, but I'm speaking. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
This is the important point. That's why I stopped. Because I, I want you to get this. God's call goes with the grain. He's not going to call you to do things you don't want to do. He's going to call you to do things that fulfill you, that make you more alive than you can ever be otherwise. So God's call isn't there to be run away from and fought. It's there because he goes with the grain. So what is it that floats your boat? What is it that fires your rocket? What is it that you can jump off the edge for to embrace and immerse fully yourselves in? Because when we have identified that, we may ask ourselves, is this a vocation through which God may call me just as he called Moses? Well, if the call begins through that sense of vocation, it's fulfilled secondly uh, in the vision to be seen. Chapter 3 begins with this defining moment uh, of the burning bush, the revelation of God before Moses. And it's a strange sight. Moses has uh, led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And sometimes we have to get to the far side of the wilderness where we're so far away from what we thought we should be doing or were going to do before God speaks to us. God reveals himself in that place. They're on the far side of the wilderness and the angel of the Lord appears to him in flames in the fire of the bush. And Moses turns aside to see it because it is such a strange sight. The bush isn't being burned up. It's in the flames, and the flames are all around it, but the flames are not consuming the bush. And so he sees something that he's not seen before. And he begins to see something about God that makes the world new. See, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, fire is a symbol of God. There's the refining fire of the Lord. There's the fire of judgment. There in the New Testament is the fire at Pentecost. We're, we're used to this kind of metaphor for God. But in this vision, the bush of the fire is not being burned up. The flames were not nourished by the fuel of the bush. They were self-propagating self-sustaining, truly living flames. They were the source of life rather than the destroyer of life. The self-sustaining, maintaining, self-sufficient reality of God is in these flames. And now, up until this point, Moses and all the Hebrew people believed that if you looked on God, the presence of God, it was certain death. No one could look upon the face of God and live. A common phrase. But in the bush, Moses sees a representation of the people of God in the very presence of the living God. Not harmed, but protected. Not condemned, but encouraged, not destroyed, but given life. 
And actually, it's a representation of Jesus. God present with people in his physical present form. And verse 2 of chapter 3 tells us about the angel of the Lord appearing to him in the flames. The angel of the Lord often used to speak of the presence of God in the Old Testament. And he's revealed as the protecting presence of God that dwells with the people, speaks with them, and is there to save them. So the vision transforms Moses' view of the world. What would the world be like if God were present with us? What can be achieved if God really is here, going on in Moses' mind? What would it mean for the fulfillment of all God's promises for his enslaved people? It's a vision of Jesus that transforms his view of the world and what is possible. And it was the vision of Jesus that sparked Meadgate Church into life. It's the vision of Jesus that kindles that Raising Families uh, initiative that we support in Zambia and we learned about last week. It helps families in Zambia see how their lives can be changed and benefited. It's the vision of Jesus that is at the heart of the call of God to go out and change the world. And so the very basic question that every Christian asks in whatever circumstances they are in, and we'll know from the notices that there are difficult circumstances this weekend. But whatever circumstances we're in, we're seeking God. Where is God when we are on the far side of the wilderness? Where is the holy ground? Where is the burning bush? Where is the vision of Jesus that will help me see how things can be different for me and through me. Well, if we have the vocation and we see the vision, we're two-thirds on the way to the call. But if we're discerning a call from God as Moses did, then thirdly, there must be the voice of God. And it's occurred to me that actually this opens up a whole new sermon about how you hear the voice of God, which I'm not going to go into because uh, I've got to think about that. But the voice of God is important. It comes particularly uh, there in verse uh, 7 to 10 of chapter 3. It begins with this affirmation that all of us Christians take to heart. God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their crying because of their slave drivers. That's a key thing to hold on to. The Hebrew people had been languishing for generations in Egypt under the oppression. And they cried out to God night after night, how long? And from their perspective, it might well have seemed that God is oblivious to their plight. But God says, I have seen, I have heard. You know, when you're in Egypt, 
when you are in Egypt, when you're languishing, the chips are down and life's a struggle. We have these words, I have seen, I have heard. When it's a long time, when there seems to be no change and no way of change, we have these words, I have seen, I have heard. When life sucks, when the pain goes on, I have seen, I have heard. And it may take a while, but God has seen our misery. God does hear our cry. And then in verse 7 comes those words that are most hope of all. I have come down, for I am concerned about their suffering. And do you see what, what's happening in that sentence there in verse 7? I'm concerned about their suffering. It's confirming Moses' vocation. I'm concerned just as you're concerned. Your concern for the, unjust, for the injustices of the world and the oppressed people is a God-felt, heartfelt, divinely inspired feeling. I also am concerned for the suffering of my people. He's concerned for the downtrodden and he's looking out for the underdog. And, and Moses is listening to that voice that is confirming everything that his heart has been orientated toward. It's the driving force of his life. But the voice of God doesn't just affirm what's going on in Moses' heart. It also confirms the vision. In the next verses, I have come down to rescue them, to bring them out to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I will change the world for my people. The very thing that Moses has seen could happen in the burning bush. The vision is confirmed as the vocation is affirmed in those words of God, in the voice of God. So in verse 10, having had this vocation affirmed and the vision affirmed, he discovers his task. So now go. I'm sending you to Egypt to bring my people, the Israelites, out. Go back to that place that you have run away from. In my presence, by my spirit, and transform the lives of the people there. And it's an awesome task for Moses. It pits him against the superpower of his day. And he balks at it. We'll learn that next time from Luke in the five complaints of Moses. Well, at least that's what I hope you're going to say, Luke. And yet, you see, even though it seems daunting, he has been prepared for it over 80 years. 80 years he's been coming to this point and the next 40 are going to be the pinnacle, the supreme achievement of his life. The best is yet to come. So, if you're 80 years old today, God has not finished with you. It's not over. God still has plans 
and purposes. And I often think that those mothers and fathers amongst us who have reached the age where grey hair is a crown of glory, as the scripture says, those who are there, your job is maybe not to be the frontline battlers, but to be those who are winning the war in prayer. We need you to pray for us as we're doing the job in the physicality. We need you at half past six tomorrow morning, if you're a man, to pray with us for our workplaces. And we need you at half past seven on, Sunday, on Tuesday evening to pray for our children and youth. We need your prayers. If you're 80 years older or more, it ain't over yet, folks. The best is yet to come. But if you haven't reached the age of 80 yet, don't rush it. You are where you are meant to be. You're, you're where you're meant to be, being prepared for that which God has in store for you. Until you hear the voice of God telling you to be somewhere else. And when he does, it will be clear. It's a voice that will affirm your vocation. It will affirm your vision of Jesus Christ and it will direct you to the next place. Such is the call of Moses. The call founded on those three things. The vocation of his heart, his vision of Christ and his voice of the living God. May those be the profound things that lead us as we seek God's call for our church and for ourselves in these days. Amen.